Thank you both for a wonderful session. Uh, we're going to move on with our program to talk about antiretroviral therapy cases. And I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Joe Aron, who is from a professor of medicine at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Joe is also the vice chair of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network and one of our internationally known antiretroviral therapy investigators. He's been responsible for numerous um, key findings and development of new drugs and is currently leading the charge on HIV cure research and broadly neutralizing antibody therapies for the AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network, among his many other roles. So I'll turn the program now over to Joe Aron, who will start the discussion with case presentations, and members of the panel will be also invited to participate in some of his uh, discussions. So Joe, I'll turn it over to you now. Okay. So everybody got to see my financial disclosures for a while. That's fine. Uh, these are the learning objectives. Um, we're going to talk a lot about first line. We're going to uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, what to do with uh, women who are considering pregnant or are pregnant, uh, considering pregnancy or are pregnant. And then we're going to hopefully get to, to weight gain um, and maybe long acting in, in, in real life. I know uh, Dr. Taiwo just spoke to you about that. So this is our first case, and um, the cases are are pretty similar, but I'll I'll walk through it. This is a this is a 35 year old man who was recently diagnosed with HIV infection. Um, he has a good CD4 cell count. His viral load is less than 100,000. No comorbidities. Has a normal creatinine, and um, I, it's unlikely he's actually an American because his cholesterol is 150. Um, his husband is negative and recently tested and is very supportive. And, but all his other labs are pending. Um, so the question to you, uh, uh, is, um, would you start antiretroviral therapy now? So this is a, uh, an ARS question. You can, you can go and now means like right now. So I can't see it totaling up and we don't have any music for Mike, uh, to sing. And so, uh, virtually everybody said yes. Um, almost nobody said no, and a couple people were unsure. Um, uh, Paul, do you want to say anything? You're the home of Rapid Start. Uh, do you want to say anything about Rapid Start? Um, we don't have to talk a lot about it. Yeah, sure, Joe. I think it, it's. Um, I think there's a general consensus, certainly here in San Francisco, that that uh, Rapid Start uh, really is an important part of our uh, of our effort, um, but. Having said that, I think there are a lot of people who will push back a little bit and say, you know, if the patient is coming in through the ER and you don't have a system set up, um, yeah. maybe the next day is not so bad. Um, but, uh, but I think as soon as possible, and I, I would, I would have, this is a kind of an ideal person, uh, to consider that in. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Um, uh, I, I think that's right. I, I'm, I'm not going to belabor this. I, I think the, maybe the most important thing you said, um, is this, you know, the system set up, having a system to do this. You know, we don't have a great system here in, in Chapel Hill. We try to people start people as quickly as we possibly can. Um, we're in a, a, a red state. Hopefully we'll become a blue state. But um, uh, so we don't have expanded Medicaid. So, so we have some issues. Um, there, there are good data um, showing actually improved mortality. Now, these data are mostly from uh, the developing world, um, uh, but but show a benefit to mortality, show a benefit in terms of loss to follow-up. And I think the people in San Francisco, and this is what Paul is, uh, Paul, Dr. Volbering was talking about. This is from the Rapid Start program in, in San Francisco. And I think what you can see here is these are really hard to treat people, right? There are a lot of people, half of them had some substance abuse issue, almost half had some mental health diagnosis, a third were unstably housed. And yet they had this really terrific response. And in this most recent paper from a, a year ago, they actually had longer-term follow-up. And and um, 92% remained suppressed at their last time of follow-up. So um, it definitely works. I think it engages people. Uh, but, again, um, it's the, the idea is to get people on therapy as soon as you can. 
Um, and, and certainly don't give someone medication if, if, you know, if it's not, they're not in a stable, responsible, uh, setting. But you can see that if you have the right system, um, in place, like Paul and, and, uh, I think Chris Pilcher might have helped start this, uh, um, and, and others, um, uh, have set up, it, it does really work. Okay, so. For just a second. Yeah, yeah, please, please do jump in. Comment from the audience about rapid start needing to include thoughts and feelings of the individual patient, that it's not just up to the doctor to make a decision about rapid start. So yeah. just wondered if you want. Yeah, to- no, we're, I mean, we're, our job is to provide advice. And I think, you know, our job is to provide advice with some level of certainty, I think. Uh, and, but it is certainly the, uh, the, uh, patient or client, uh, it's their prerogative, um, and, and to, you know, start therapy, uh, you know, to refuse to start therapy or to start therapy, um, uh, you know, delay the start of therapy. I think what I'm talking about mostly is, um, how, how convinced are we that we, you should start as soon as possible. And when I speak to patients, I tell them I'm very convinced that it's important to start as soon as possible. I, I don't go into the data. I'm sure virtually everybody on the call knows about the START study. And, and really, people with very high CD4s, substantial benefit and, and really serious outcomes, including AIDS outcomes and, and cancers. And so I think I bet most of the people on this call uh, would feel feel similar. Um, oh, Joe, this Paul, just uh, just to correct uh, what you said, I, I take no credit, uh, nor would I be given credit for having started rapid here. <laughs> happened okay. after I, after well, I, yeah, well I don't know. I bet many people on that paper consider you a mentor at the very least. Um, so now our second question. So this is a very, you know, uh, remember this is a very stable person. Turns out you got some of the um, the these. Tests are pending, but you happen to know his creatinine um, and his cholesterol. Just um, uh, this is there's no right or wrong answer here. Just let let me know what what you would choose uh, for this uh, patient. Um, so go ahead and vote. Baba Femi, while people are voting, what 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 would you do here? Well, I would use uh, the Lutegravir Tough FTC, and the reason for that, I think you know. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> But because uh, I'm thinking about three months from now and what I will do. Yep. Um, it looks like uh, the group again. Wow, the vast majority of the group uh, would pick uh, pick Bictegra Taf FTC. Um, we're going to talk a little bit in the future about starting with two drug therapy. Um, Connie, what, what would you pick in this setting? You know, I, I guess I'm not quite in the realm of feeling completely comfortable with starting with two-drug therapy. Um, I know we're accumulating a lot of evidence to suggest that two-drug therapy may be appropriate in certain settings, particularly for those with low viral loads, but I would like to see longer-term follow-up and outcome from initiating two-drug therapy before I make that decision myself. I think in our part of California, uh, we're very much into the Bictegravir TAF FTC regimen because it's uh, one pill. And I think a lot of the other ones on the list are appropriate as well with the Dolutegravir TAF FTC being probably our second choice here. Most of our group would not start a uh, back of regimen until we had testing results for HLA B5701. But I think I would go with the option that the audience chose, Bictegravir TAF FTC. And you probably um, would go to a 3TC only um, backbone until you get the hepatitis results back, right? Right. Yeah, and I and I think that's what um, uh, Baba Femi, who who I think of the kind of the 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 the, the beacon of two drug therapy would would say, and uh, um, and I'll show the two drug therapy in a minute. But I, I think the the point here is that I think most of the audience that's very sophisticated, and certainly most of our experts would start with a you know to put it simply a second generation um, uh, integrase inhibitor. Um, 
and with the second generation, either Bictegravir or Dalutegravir, I think we're we're all comfortable with not knowing the resistance test, not knowing the viral hepatitis, as long as we uh, include uh, a tenofovir component to that therapy. Um, and and these are the kind of the current guidelines. The ISUSA guidelines will be coming out soon. Uh, I know many people on the call. Um, uh, on, and on the panel, I've worked really hard on the ISUSA guidelines that will be coming out. I'm going to push you, Connie, just a little tiny bit here. Is there anybody that should get a back of yours first-line therapy for any reason? I personally can't think of one. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, was, I, I, I think, you know, we'll see what the guidelines show, but I, I think uh, just as the guidelines have clearly completely moved away from boosting. You can see there are no boosted regimens here. Um, I, I think the guidelines will potentially move away from the back of here. We'll, we'll see what the DHHS does. Yeah. Particularly, um, there's one other comment from the audience about why not wait until all of the labs, especially the hepatitis B uh, laboratory results are available before choosing a regimen. I think this just goes back to your earlier comments about the potential benefits and risks of rapid start. I think that goes also into the question about that you just raised about in the back of your containing regimen. I think as we move further away from even using it in first line therapy, um, the question really becomes um, easier in terms of rapid start. No need to start something that doesn't contain a tenofovir or tenofovir or uh, TAF-based approach. Thanks, Connie. Um, perfect. Okay, now we're going to switch things up a tiny bit. This is a similar person, uh, viral load 87,000, no comorbidities, but um, this person doesn't come in with a partner, and he has multiple partners, some of who are HIV positive, but some of whom he's not sure. Um, he, we do know some labs here. He's hepatitis uh, B, uh, uh, excuse me, hepatitis C, antibody positive, so he's had hepatitis C. He's immune to hepatitis B. You know that he's HLA B5701 negative, but you also have a resistance test, and it shows um, uh, some uh, reverse transcriptase mutations. Um, uh, Those are old thymidine analog mutations, and then, of course, the classical efavirenz mutation K103N. There's an old protease inhibitor mutation, L90M. Um, uh, some of the people on the call are old enough to remember L90M, not Connie, but um, uh, Paul and I are old enough. Um, and then there's this T97A in integrase, and, and um, I'll, I'll help people out. That's typically a polymorphism, but depending on what kind of report you get, it, it might show up as a resistance mutation. Um, so, uh, again, this is a question, uh, an ARS question. Uh, the second part of the question is for the panel, but does this change your treatment choice? You've got multi-class resistance, potentially. Does this change what you were going to do? Remember, 85% of you or so were going to give Bictegravir TAF FTC. So, Baba Femi, is this changing your plan? Not not uh, too much, really, because I mean, I'll be thinking about the um, L97A um, as, as a potential integrase uh, res- mutation, but it's a polymorphism, and we know that it really does not have an effect on dolutegravir or bictegravir. Mm. It, should, it should not. Um, yep. And with the um, with the TAF FTC uh, combination, I think that gives uh, additional support. I'll be thinking about a potential role for boosted PIs here, but. Again, darunavir should still be active despite the, the L90N. So, yes, there's some reasons to, to think there might be uh, issues here, but I, I think that uh, it's still likely that the patient will do well. Yeah. There's a question from the audience. This resistance pattern is in a recently diagnosed person. So, uh, Yeah, this is actually a case that... Um, the, 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 the Actually, the background's a little different, but the genotype comes from a... A uh, case uh, um, uh, at Duke, actually, um, uh, that was shared with me. The, uh, so it was a recently diagnosed uh, uh, person. Um, we've I, actually I one more one quick comment though is that the what the way it will affect my thinking is that 
Whereas I would have started that same that patient first on the Doltegravir 550C and tried to switch them to Doltegravir for three TC in three months, I, I, I might be a little more cautious. In the, well, not I might, I will be a little more cautious in this patient uh, just because of that. Yeah. So how about using Doltegravir Rilpivirine in this situation? Another. Yeah, the concern is that it's not been studied in the naive patients. So it would not uh, be a, a common uh, choice for a treatment naive patient. And, yeah, although K103 and shouldn't affect your PPR. Right, right, right. Yeah, you, 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 yeah, potentially that would be, if someone wanted to be on a simpler two-drug regimen, Paul, that would might be a really good transition. Um, yeah, so that I think yeah. that makes sense. One, um, of the, one of the audience members is asking whether there's any value in using raltegravir at all nowadays with better... Insties available? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I honestly don't really think so. I, I do think that, you know, raltegravir is a medicine we've had since, what, about 14 years, 13 or 14 years, 2006. Um, and we, we know it's very, very safe and very well tolerated. Um, it has very few drug interactions. So I could see if maybe there are situations where you might use raltegravir, but in, in general, um, uh, it's certainly um, very few people develop resistance taking raltegravir, but it does have a lower genetic barrier uh, and pharmacologic barrier than uh, dalyotegravir or bictegravir. So I, I don't think so, but I, I could imagine you could come up with an older patient, complicated medicines uh, already on twice daily or, or already on multiple pills, um, perhaps, but I, I don't. Uh, in the ISUSA guidelines, you, you, you on the previous slide, we, we've you know we uh, Connie and I and Paul are on those guidelines. We, we, we've we've dropped raltegravir even as recently as 2018. So, well, here's another question that might uh, persuade you in a different direction. What okay. about women who may want to get pregnant? No, that's coming. That's coming. Okay. That, we're gonna we're gonna wait on that question because um, okay. there's a lot. There's brand new data about that that people really need to see. We have a very sophisticated audience. Uh, most people weren't going to change their um, treatment, and I think that makes sense. These are data from a study that looked at either um, uh, uh, BF TAF or Bictegravir uh, TAF FTC or or Dalutegravir uh, TAF FTC or, or Dalutegravir Abacavir. Uh, 3TC in treatment-naive people, and they went and they actually did, uh, uh, they had baseline resistance testing and they looked at outcomes. And in this particular study, they led in people with um, some NRTI resistance. They led in people um, with um, uh, NNRTI resistance, so so a substantial proportion, more than 10%, had NNRTI resistance. Some had PI resistance. And even a few snuck in uh, with primary I. Uh, integrase resistance, and I suspect because uh, the 97A is sometimes considered a primary mutation, these might be um, uh, 97A mutations, and um, and then there are a lot of people that have integrase polymorphisms, and basically what RAP means, this is the um, virologic outcome, who actually had virologic rebound, this was the resistance analysis panel, and you can see that everybody, virtually everybody succeeded. Nobody developed resistance. Um, there were a few uh, rebounds in the study, but nobody developed resistance. And it really didn't matter that there was NRTI resistance, NNRTI resistance, PI resistance. So that's where that's what gives Baba Femi and, and Connie and, and Paul the confidence and, and most of our audience to use a second generation. Um, and then, we at, in, in North Carolina looked very carefully at um, uh, what we did. We had over 800 people that had a resistance test within three months of a new diagnosis. So this was our proxy for um, uh, pre-therapy resistance. And, and what you can see is there's a lot of T97A floating around in this world. Uh, NL74M, which Baba Femi might have mentioned. I didn't hear all of this talk. Um, but, but these are integrase... Um, uh, polymorphisms that that um, don't typically have impact on our drugs. Um, and out of 840, we only had two people that had um, evidence of 
pre-therapy integrase resistance. So obviously well, well less than 1%, less than half a percent. Um, so, um, uh, really, uh, substantial transmitted integrase resistance is uncommon. I'm going to keep going. Um, uh, Connie or Paul, I, I don't have a clock um, anywhere on my screen, so um, uh, you That's know, twenty six minutes left, Joe. Okay, good. All right. That's terrific. Um, so this uh, <laughs> this was created for for um, Baba Femi. This is a stylized case. This is not a this is not an actual person, but it could be. Um, this is a the same thirty five year old man who has sex with men. Um, his viral load is 187,000. It's bolded and underlined because it's higher than in the previous cases. But he has type 1 diabetes since age 15. Um, initially, with poor control like many um, uh, adolescent type 1 diabetics, but um, he's now well-controlled. He has a strong family history for diabetes and, and MI. Um, his ALT is normal, but unfortunately, because of his um, long-standing diabetes, initially poorly controlled, he actually has a creatinine clearance just below 40. Um, his total cholesterol is good on a torvastatin. He takes his medicine. He is also in a stable relationship. He is um, immune to hepatitis B. Um, he's HLA B57 negative, and he has a wild-type virus. Um, so this is a little more complicated. So um, go ahead and, and tell us what you would pick in this particular patient. Um, uh, notice that choice one is either Bictegvir or Dalutegvir uh, plus TAF FTC, uh, so you don't have to um, make that difficult decision um, about um, that. And then um, why don't we, um, Paul? What 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 do you think? Here's here's a person whose creatinine clearance is above 30, viral load um, less than 500,000, very adherent. It appears. Um, what, what would you pick in this setting? As I unmute myself, I think um, I, I'm just liking uh, talking about Delutech. You're very real pivoting, I guess, but this is not, <laughs> not a situation where you use it. Um, it's, you know, it's untreated um, and his uh, viral load is, is really very high. So you want to avoid that. And I probably would uh, extend that to a lot of the, uh, the two drug combinations. So um I think still going for an integrase, uh, one of the, the second generation integrase as your, as your, uh, uh keystone, uh, drug. Um, and then, um, and then looking for something else, maybe certainly, um, I guess you could go just with 3TC, um, right. adjusting it with a renal failure. Yeah. Yeah. It might not be the fixed dose combination. So, so Connie, you said you were hesitant about Dalutegavir 3TC. Um, is this someone where you might pull that trigger? I'm, Personally, I'm a little worried about a diabetic whose creatinine is already 2.6 or 2.9, whatever it was, that that he may be above 30 today with his creatinine clearance, but but maybe not tomorrow. Is it, Connie? What do you think? Because I know you're you're thoughtful but but conservative in your in your uh, treatment. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, this, you know, in in my earlier comments, I was being more conservative, but there are certain situations where dolutegravir 3TC might be an appropriate choice. And this is, I think, one of them. Obviously, I'd be very concerned about the creatinine clearance, the diabetes not being, you know, we all know how difficult it has been for people with type 1 diabetes to maintain um, solid control forever. Mm -hmm. I'd be, we already have some evidence of diabetic kidney disease. So I would be, you would watch this person very carefully, but this might be a situation where the Dalutegravir 3TC would be an appropriate choice. Yeah. And I, I think that I don't want to speak for Barbara Femi, but maybe I will. I mean, this is also one where you could certainly use Dalutegravir TAF FTC. And then as soon as they were suppressed, if they're, viral load started to, or their, their creatinine started to worsen, then, then the dolutegravir 3TC or dolutegravir pivoring, as Paul uh, pointed out, might might be a good therapy. Uh, yeah. I'm going to keep going. Um, probably a good one, too. Yep. Um, our audience, too, is concerned about using TAF-FTC in a patient with renal dysfunction. Yeah. Why why not a boosted PI with an integrase inhibitor? Mm. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's an excellent question. Uh, that's choice three. Um, I just, you know, we, we've, we haven't really found a boosted PI plus an integrase inhibitor that we think is going to work. I mean, um, Baba Femi and I were convinced that, you know, um, Darunavir, boosted Darunavir and Raltegavir would be the two great drugs. They would be so great together. And, and Baba Femi would tell them, what happened? Yeah, I mean the viral. The, the, it, it looked it looked good, but when we looked more carefully, persons with viral load over hundred thousand and CD4 count or CD4 count less than two hundred really did not uh, do well. Uh, it was not it did not meet uh, uh, did not compare favorably. And when failure occurred, there was emergence of integrase resistance. Yeah, and of course it's a BID construct too. So because we use raltegravir then BID. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and, and we've tried boosted PI plus Maraviroc, that didn't work. You know, you know, boosted PI was a so it probably would work. Uh, it's probably fine. Um, uh, it's just that we we don't really uh, and and obviously um, you could give Darunavir with Cobicistat plus Dalutegravir. It would be once a day. It would only be two pills. Um, so it 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 would probably work. Um, uh, but we, we just don't have any data to support that. Um, and, and we're not, we're not crazy about boosters. Um, so, but, but it's a good question. It's not, certainly not wrong. There's no, there, well, there might be a wrong answer or two on the slide, but, but, um, uh, actually probably not. I don't think there's a wrong answer on this slide. Um, uh, but, um, uh, the, uh, there are no data for ropivirine dolutegravir as initial therapy. I, I personally bet it would work, but but there aren't any uh, aren't aren't data yeah, for that. I guess the other question about boosted, you know, cobicistat aside, if you were using ritonavir, the patient's already on a torvastatin for control of cholesterol sure. and has a strong family history of yep. uh, early MI. So that might be a, a boosted option you would avoid anyway. So. Yeah, no, good point. And Kobe Sistat may have that same. Certainly, certainly their Darunavir appears to have some, you know, uh, myocardial infarction risk, risk. It's modest, but it, it appears to be there. So but let's keep going. Those great. You guys are terrific. These are the, you know, we're, we, a lot of people, including me, <laughs> frequently say, I really want to see long-term therapy with the long-term outcomes with two-drug therapy. We now have, you know, 96-week data um, in two-drug therapy. Um, I'm sure, um, you know, soon we'll have 154 weeks or whatever comes next, um, uh, 144 weeks. Um, so there is long-term data, and it's really important. In this study, uh, these were treatment-naive people, um, uh, got dolutegravir 3TC compared to dolutegravir FTC-TDF. Uh, you can see really there is no difference. And then we just published these data recently. Um, uh, uh, we, we looked at um, various viral load strata and, you know, you can see here, you know, greater than a hundred thousand, you know, no difference. In fact, you know, numerically um, uh, the two drug therapy w- was a tiny bit better, but the numbers are really small here. And there were even a few people that snuck in, uh, with viral loads greater than 500,000 because their screening was less, but their uh, entry was more. And there's no suggestion of loss of activity. Um, but I, like Connie, am also still um, reserving my two-drug therapy for specific situations. Um, uh, there's very strong data about switching the two-drug therapy. I don't have it in there. Um, I don't have it, sorry, in here. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, and, and I think, a, uh, it certainly would be reasonable to suppress someone on three drugs and then move to two drugs. Okay. So this gets to the questioner, um, uh, one of our, uh, audience had about, um, a woman, uh, pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant. So this is a 35 year old woman this time. Um, she's, um, uh, got a good CD4, a viral less than a hundred thousand. She has no comorbidities. She is only on an oral contraceptive. That's her only medicine. She's in a stable relationship with an HIV negative man. And, and, um, she'd like to get pregnant as soon as possible. She doesn't have any children. She's 35 years old. Um, she, she doesn't really want to wait a long time to become pregnant. Uh, she understands that our advice would be that she would, should have her viral load suppressed first. Um, she has wild type virus. She's, um, 
uh, doesn't have hepatitis C. She's immune to hepatitis uh, B. Um, so um, what would you choose? Um, and I, I'm warning you, there, there are interesting new data um, that some of you, maybe everybody's seen, but we'll see. Um, uh, you know, Connie, I'm going to resist asking the woman on the panel. It always seems like if, it, because it's a woman patient, we should ask the woman on the panel, but I'm going to, Sally's I'm going to, Sally's on the panel. Oh, Sally. Oh my God. Sally, your picture's not here. <laughs> I oh, oh. tried to get a word in edgewise twice, Joe, and I could. No, your picture <laughs> just appeared because you didn't talk. <laughs> Okay, I'll talk. Yeah, you're, I'm so sorry. Um, no, believe me. Okay, now you're, the floor is yours. You can yeah, have the floor for the whole rest of the, the talk. Women. <laughs> I am so sorry. Oh, you can see what people said. Though this is very interesting. Um, now, this is this is absolutely uh, interesting. And I, I, the data that I assume Joe is referring to are obviously the uh, continued data that have come out about dolutegravir. Um, several years ago, data came out of Botswana where there's no folate um, uh, replacement or supplementation that dolutegravir, when it was used uh, in women who were becoming pregnant and early on, there was uh, an increased incidence of neural tube defects um, in the infants, which is, is, of course, very, very serious. Um, as time has gone on, uh, We've seen that uh, risk come down as there have been more and more women in the studies. Uh, and I think that it, it was very interesting at the time those data came out. Of course, the knee-jerk was that, that you know, women should not use this. And there was a very vocal contingent uh, from Africa as well as other parts of the world of women saying that you need to really present us with the risks and the benefits, and we need to be part of the decision-making. And I think that that was really very important. Um, what I would do, I, I think on the list, the, the ones that I would not choose are uh, Bictegravir. There's not a, a data, I think, sufficient to consider it uh, safe. Uh, I think that efavirenz, we used to be concerned about uh, neural tube defects, but subsequently, uh, we now know from the pregnancy registry that the incidence of neural tube defect in infants is not uh, greater. Um, I think Reltegravir is actually has an established um, safety and is one of the uh, uh, agents of choice uh, in the uh, pregnancy guidelines. So I think that that's a good choice. And I think Dolutegravir, this woman, woman is not pregnant. She wants to conceive. And I would sort of distinguish, if you look at the pregnancy guidelines, what is recommended now is that you don't stop what they're on if they're being suppressed and switch to something else because the risk is losing control. But I think that it's a bit different when a woman wants to conceive, and I would discuss with her the risks. You know, I've had uh, women who have had, uh, you know, pregnancy um, mishaps and are very sensitive to that. And, and would feel much more comfortable with Raltegravir. Uh, and I think that there are other women who, you know, once you look at the data and show them the risk is coming down, would prefer to go with uh, Dolutegravir. So I, I think that, you know, they could go either way. I think Tenofovir uh, and uh, 3TC or FTC have been established to be safe uh, in pregnancy, and that would be sort of the new uh, backbone that, that I would select. Great. Um, so that was fantastic, and I, I don't I don't have to talk about my next slides because you just no, did it. well, but but the one thing you have to do, and I mean I have been guilty of this, is somebody tells you she wants to get pregnant, you make sure that she has folate supplementation. Yeah, well. oh yeah, that's and it's so important. It's really easy when you have a busy HIV clinic, you know, to to yep. sort of forget that. So that that is really really important. Yeah, that's that's super. Um, so go, go ahead, Paul. So I have a question for audience, Sally. Oh. Sorry. I, I'm just keeping up with Q&A. Our audience gives you uh, here, here for treatment advocacy. And then there are two questions related to any comments on TAP versus FTC during pregnancy or in patients who want to conceive. It's coming. It's coming. I will, I will address those questions. Paul, right. Paul go ahead. Paul, yeah. go ahead. 
so the, I, I guess the question I had uh, for Sally was, um, I know there's not prospective data yet from Vic Tagovier, but, you know, I tend to think of Vic and Dowell as so comparable. And now that we're feeling very comfortable about Dahlia Tagovier, um, is there any real reason to think that's, that it's going to be different? Um, I know that's heretical, but just floating it out there. Well, I mean, but the the thing about it is if there were, you know, I think we have two other good, really good choices that we're more comfortable with, right? So I'm not sure personally that that there would be a compelling uh, reason. And there are all sorts of, you know, old examples about things where the animal talks looked okay, but when it got out millions and millions of people, the drug, you know, then you saw um, effects, particularly uh, teratogenic effects. So I... I would err on this side. I mean, pregnancy is not a permanent condition. It's nine months. <laughs> and, you know, I think, and you, thank God. Yeah. The stakes are high. And, and I think that, you know, that is a place where I would go with uh, drugs that we had some um, experience uh, uh, with. Yeah. So, so uh, Sally was so right on target. Um, uh, what you can see here is that, that these are the guidelines from April. So before the new data came out, and 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 one is that dalutegravir is recommended for women no matter where they are in pregnancy. So there's no restriction. We used to talk about, oh, don't use it during the first trimester. So remember, wherever you are in pregnancy, dalutegravir has is a preferred drug based on our guidelines. And then. Um, uh, then the, it is actually an alternative, just as um, uh, Sally said, for women who are trying to conceive. And then the third bullet is what, you know, what Sally said exactly, which is remember to, to make sure women take folate. And this is before the guidelines panel, I assume before the guidelines panel saw these data. These are the data that were presented in AIDS 2020 online showing um, the continued decrease of um, the risk of neural tube defects with dalutegravir. Um, you know, now um, they have over 3,500 women exposed, and uh, there are only um, a seven neural tube defects. You might remember that, that when it was first reported, it was four out of 400. So they've added over almost 3,200 more women and had only three additional um, uh uh, uh, infants uh, with neural tube defects. So it's not the same as they see with the Favrins. It's still higher um, by a small amount than they see with the Favrins. Um, uh, and so I think the discussions that Sally was talking about, you would still have them because perhaps there's some elevated risk. But remember, these women didn't, didn't, uh, don't, uh, the grain in Botswana is not supplemented with folate. Um, that's what we know. Um, uh, so, uh, you can see that there was, you can see with the Favrins, the risk is very low, which is, you know, I'm sure some of you out there are old enough to remember we thought a Favrins would be, you know, just could never be given to someone who was thinking about conceiving. And it turns out, you know, it, it's as, as safe as nothing, basically. That's the same rate that you see in women, uh, without HIV who are not, um, uh, who are not getting any medication. So, uh, but now these data were presented at Croy. They were presented by Lamek Chinula, who's a um, OBGYN in, in Malawi uh, as part of the uh, Impact Network. Um, and uh, this is a busy slide, but I'll make it simple for you. Um, uh, these were women who were found to be pregnant. They could have started therapy, but they 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 had to be on I think less than 14 days of treatment, and then they were randomized to either dalutegravir with uh, FTC TAF. Dalutegravir with um, FTC TDF or um, the three drug therapy uh, Afavrin's FTC TDF. Um, so this was uh, about 200, a little over 200 pregnant women in each arm. So not an easy study to do. Um, not surprisingly, more women were suppressed um, uh, with dalutegravir. Less than 200 at the time of delivery. This was a significant difference. Um, uh, uh, between Dalutegra and Afavrins. Um, so, uh, uh, people are women, uh, people, women are, who are pregnant are more likely to be suppressed. But these are the data that I think might change what we do. 
Um, this is looking at adverse outcomes, both adverse pregnancy outcomes, adverse birth outcomes, and just the red is actually Dalutegra FTC TAF. Whoops, no, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. Um, uh, and and actually TAF had the least um, proportion, the smallest proportion, sorry, of adverse pregnancy outcomes, less preterm delivery, less small for gestational age. Um, you know, there's some significant values here. There's some values that aren't significant, um, but uh, numerically different. And then uh, smaller numbers of, uh, of um, stillbirth, though, though it was actually lowest with the Favrin's uh, FT, FTC TDF. So um, uh, the guidelines people in April probably didn't have time to digest this information. Um, and I think it's an open question whether, whether TAF will now be um, added as an appropriate drug uh, for women who are pregnant. Um, Connie, do you have an opinion? Do you think this is enough, these are enough data, or do you think it's still a little too early? I'm very impressed with these data. It was a very carefully done study, yeah. and I think the data are uh, are appropriate. I think there's one question, although uh, never mind, but I think it's still worth talking about. While the risk of neural tube defect is higher with dolutegravir versus if aberrans, is it statistically significantly higher or just a modest uh, effect? It it is it is statistically significantly higher. Um, uh, that's the risk difference up here. Uh, well, I don't know. Um, it it includes zero point zero. So so I, I think it would be point zero five on the on the Richter scale on the on the um, uh, so. Uh, I think it'll be right at that edge of, of significance. Um, uh, I think, though, the, the comparator, Joe, has been to non-dolutegravir, right? So when you yes. compare dolutegravir exposed to non-dolutegravir exposed, it's not statistically significant. Yeah. As opposed to which, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's 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 numerically higher, but I didn't include that slide that had all the comparisons, but um, uh, I, I think it is for example, statistically higher than women without HIV, for example, because there's more power in that because they have a lot more women without HIV. So there's probably, in the absence of folate, in a um, uh, developing world country, um, there probably is some small risk of dolutegravir. Um, that's very small risk, is, uh, but, uh, but there's some uncertainty about that. Um, all right, let's get to the realm of we can use dolutegravir TAF regimens then. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I think the benefits of using that. Now, just curiously, right, and I, I actually have not reviewed this poster. Maybe other people have. There was a, a meta-analysis that looked at um, uh, multiple dolutegravir-based studies and multiple ethavrins-based studies in women who are pregnant. And they looked at transmissions. And um, in this um, meta-analysis, there were zero transmissions in the efavirenz studies and five uh, in the Dalyatagavir studies. Now, that's a very small number. <laughs> I don't know if you would make anything of that. Um, but I will say that in, in this study, it surprised me a tiny bit that there was one infant who became infected um, even though maternal viral load was less than 40 at the time of delivery. Now, in, in utero, infection can occur. It's thought to be uncommon, but um, it certainly, you know, raised my antenna a little bit. Um, I don't, it's probably kind of um, uh, uh, not a difference. Um, and and uh, if we studied enough people on a Favrins, we'd probably find women um, with um, occasionally a child that gets infected, but I, I, that did kind of raise my attention that there was a, a, a baby who became infected. Yeah. Um, Joe, Joe, you know, there, there was a series and it's a small number, but that looked at um, uh, infants who were infected despite the fact that the mother at delivery had an undetectable viral load. Yeah. And the correlations of that were, you know, sort of the longer the mother 
was undetectable, the less likely that was. Yeah, that's right. the reason you want somebody to put on before. The, the other thing, and I did not see the poster, so, but I'm just wondering, frequently if a woman presents without um, antenatal care. Oh, yeah, right. Good point. You put folks on uh, dolutegravir because you want that viral load to drop very quickly. You wouldn't yep. put them on a fibrin. Yep. Sure. You know, that may explain yep. it, but I don't know. I haven't. Yeah, we should look at that poster together yeah. sometime because I, I, I think that's right. There might have been a real uh, uh, difference. And I don't know how, I, I don't know how they tried to control uh, for that factor in their analysis. That, that's really smart, Sally. Thanks for adding that. Um, okay, let's move on because there are two things I want to touch on just quickly. We, we probably won't have a ton of discussion. So um, this is a little bit more complicated, but this is a, a black woman living with HIV um, with controlled diabetes. She did have transmitted drug resistance at K103N. She got started on Bictegavir, TAF, FTC, had an excellent response. Um, her viral load less than 40. She's seeing you after eight months of therapy. And since starting therapy, she's gained 15 kilograms in eight months. Um, she has type 2 diabetes. I mentioned her a, uh, A1C has increased from 6.9 to 7.7. And her um, uh, viral load's uh, target not detected less than 40. So below the detectable limit. She's tolerating her BFTAF. Um, uh, she says she hasn't changed her diet or activity, and the weight doesn't bother her that much. Um, so what do you do at this point? Um, do you continue the current therapy uh, but uh, uh, increase metformin? Consider changing her antiretroviral therapy to address weight gain, something else, or not sure? Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of internists out there, so they're um, they, they, they may have smarter things to do in terms of diabetes than I do, but this is the, uh, uh, the case. Um, Baba Femi, what, what are you going to do? But you are an internist, Joe. <laughs> I know, I am. And I tell my patients, you should see a diabetic specialist. And they always say, oh, you're good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, uh, so this patient, I don't have proof. Uh, that switching her off big tough FTC mm. improve her weight. I think that's the first thing. Uh, but again, I still, I, and, but clearly something bad is going on and, and her diabetes is getting less controlled. So I would want to emphasize lifestyle issues as much as possible. And secondly, I would try to, I would consider changing her regimen, although I don't have data yet. I'm aware of clinical trials that are planned to look at some of the, a different uh, regimen for this population. And I also know that in the uh, Tango studies, uh, Tango study patients who were switched off uh, to adulterated 3TC, they didn't have a significant change in weight over 48 weeks, mm-hmm. but there were some improvements in metabolic parameters, uh, including an uh, insulin resistance uh, marker based on the whole mass score. So I don't think that uh, in this patient, a TAF plus any integrated inhibitor will be ideal when I combine the advanced study into that. So I would want to take this patient off an integrated plus TAF-based regimen. Mm-hmm. And how I do that might be simply removing the TAF if I thought they would maintain suppression and they're not HPV co-infected and et cetera, or uh, be more experimental with like the rubberine TDF-FTC mm-hmm. um, if their renal function uh, would tolerate it yeah. while waiting for the ACCG trial to tell me if this is uh, yeah. the way to go. But I think lifestyle issues are so critical if we can. The other advantage of dolotegravir then would be that it interacts with uh, metformin. And so I might boost the metformin level a little bit uh, in this particular situation without changing the dose. Yeah, this is a, I know it's a good question because like there's like a 50-50 split of what to do uh, in our audience. So that that's really uh, useful. Um, uh, uh, do anybody on the panel have a different opinion than, than Baba Femi? He sounds like he's changing therapy. Hmm. I, I, yeah. I might have gone with option number one, but there's no, also... Tony, you and I, maybe... Yeah, we're, yeah, I would have gone with option one also. Yeah. One of our audience members suggesting adding Farsiga. I will use the brand name here, even though we're not supposed to, because I can't pronounce the... the, the <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you for helping us, us uh, older interns, uh, uh, internists. Um, I, I'm going to keep moving, but, but I would say that there's quite a debate on whether TAF actually leads to weight gain. Or is it TDF that's a, that actually uh, limits people's weight 
Um, and uh, Baba Femi mentioned the tango study. The thing that's hard to interpret on the tango study is most of the people came off of a TAF-based regimen, but most of those people were on um, L-Vitegavir, Cobicistat, TAF, and that's the one PI-based therapy that doesn't happen to have a lot of weight gain associated with it. So um, it, I think that the jury's out. But I, I think either answer is correct because um, we really don't know. Um, so, uh, Baba Femi, uh, if you're considering changing therapy, what regimen would you choose? So everybody who didn't pick, just pretend you were changing <laughs> therapy. What would you pick? Um, uh, yeah, like I said earlier on, I would pick either um, I the, the EFG, EFR was uh, GFR was fine. Yeah, I'll pick either one or two. Well, you got to uh, pick one. You can, you got to pick one of them. You can't. Oh, pick oh, one oh or I gotta two. Pick, have to pick one. Fine, <laughs> fine. Be like that, Joe. I'll, I'll, pick, I'll pick. I'll pick. I'll pick one. Okay, good. All right, let's see what the audience thought. Um, look, ah, Baba Femi, the audience is completely with you. Um, though, though, about almost uh, well, a quarter thought maybe um, they would pick um, uh, Duravarine. So, yeah, um, it's interesting. The the one regimen we know is not associated with weight gain. Um, uh, or very little is a Favrin's TDF 3TC, which wasn't picked by anybody. Um, uh, uh, so it's, oh, because of course she had resistance. Thank you, audience. You're smarter than I am. Um, good. So there was also one, one comment from the audience too that we didn't really touch on yet, but mm-hmm. I think is important here. Um, I know we've been kicking around different, uh, options of changing versus trying to, um, alter lifestyle change, but uh, many of the early studies with effective viral control and effective antiretroviral therapy were associated with weight gain in and of themselves, irrespective of whether you were talking about integrase inhibitors or not. And one of our audience members also commented on the fact that ethnicity and gender add to the risk of weight gain and how you would expose in the con- in the context of counseling patients. Yeah. Yeah, that that that, that is that I, I it wasn't a coincidence that that in this case the the um was a African a black woman. Um these are the data from the advanced study that Baba Femi mentioned. Uh now all the participants, I think virtually all if not all in this study which was done in South Africa were were black. Um, and um, you can see there's a marked difference between men and women. So the dark line is dalutegavir FTC TAF. The uh, lighter blue line is dalutegavir FTC TDF, and then efavirenz is the red line. You can see with the efavirenz based therapy in men, they 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 almost a whole year they've hardly gained any weight, and even after two years, a, a single kilogram. And and these weren't people with all CD4s of a hundred. So uh, but there were some people that probably had some return to health, yet there's very little weight gain with the fabrins. Uh And in and and men, anyway, there's not much difference between TDF and, and, and TAF. But in women, there was a marked difference between uh, uh, this is the TAF-based arm, this is the TDF arm, and, and 10 kilograms, again, that's the mean weight change. Um, so so obviously the, the, there were women like the woman that uh, in my case um, – uh, in our case, sorry, um, that gained 15 kilograms, so not not impossible. Um, and then many people say, well, what about maybe Bictegvir is better than Dalyatigvir? This is a, from, sorry about the quality of the slide, but this is from Paul Sachs's paper uh, uh, where he basically clearly showed that Bictegvir and Dalyatigvir, this is C over here at the bottom left, really had really the same impact on weight. And here's where you see that, that, uh, uh, L-vitegravir cobicistat seems to have less of an impact. And then over on the right, um, you can see there's a ranking, TAF, uh, then abacavir, uh, then TDF, and then, then AZT. But there wasn't very much data with AZT. So I'm going to go on. I think um, I'm going to ask our – did we have time for the last case, Connie, or should we should we just get questions? Because Bob has no, me no, covered – There was a question. Well, I did it. There was a question I deflected because I thought we would cover it. And it uh, was about, yeah, it was it was about uh, whether you want to use a lead-in oral, whether you should use lead-in oral um, carbotegravir. 
Every uh, time you want to use the injection, or can you use direct injection? So yeah. I didn't answer it because I, I thought you would answer it. So get you to would it. answer that. Um, uh, c- can we go over time by a couple of minutes, or is that illegal? Yeah, we can go over by – we've been answering questions kind of as we've gone along. We'll still leave some time at the end for questions. Okay, but- I'll, I'll be I'll be very quick because I think there are a couple of points about this. Um, I, I – um, uh, Basically, I, I made people, you live in Montreal, and that's because um, uh, uh, the long-acting therapy is actually approved in Canada. Uh, you speak perfect French, because I always wanted to. Um, and um, uh, there's no COVID pandemic, because we talked to people from uh, uh, Canada and asked them, well, how's it going with long-acting therapy? And they say, well, you know, we, we haven't really rolled it out very well because of COVID. But, but this is basically someone who is suppressed on therapy, is doing extremely well on dalyotegavir, TAF, FTC, with a good CD4, low viral load. Um, he travels quite a bit for work. You love him because he brings you back scotch from Heathrow Airport. Um, and um, he's tired of taking pills. Um, you, you know, he, he's thinking about HIV daily, doesn't like it. On his last trip, and this happened, just happened to one of my patients, um, he landed in Germany and he didn't have any of his medicine. Um, so he had to go to a doctor in Germany and, and, and I was fortunately able to get a, a, a brief supply of his medication. And he's heard about long acting therapy. He understands it's an IM injection. In fact, you know, he, uh, is aware that it, 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 it is like long acting penicillin for syphilis and he wants your advice. Um, so, uh, what do you recommend? Um, would you, uh, switch to oral cab and then go, uh, to every uh, four-week uh, therapy? Um, would you switch to oral cab and ropivirine, uh, but then go to every eight-week therapy? Um, uh, and there's, a, there's a, a loading dose with that. Or would you go directly to injection? Forget the oral therapy. This probably works. Um, or you wouldn't do IM, long-acting cab, ropivirine. Um, so go ahead and vote. Um, so, Baba Femi, what, what would you do in this situation? I would switch the patient to an injection. It seems somewhat primed for it. He's interested in it. Yeah. And I would, uh, my goal would be to get him on it every, uh, every eight weeks ultimately, if, if he can cope with that. And would you go directly to every eight weeks? No. Or I would, would you start with every four weeks for? No, I, I probably will start every four weeks. I, I think the, that's what I, that's probably what I'll do. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and you're not ready to go direct to inject yet. You would, you would make no. sure they tolerated the oral therapy first. I would. I do think that the period uh, that was studied in the, used in the studies was sort of long. I, maybe it can be shorter than the, yeah. than, uh, you know, four weeks or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, right now I will still want some oral evidence of, of oral. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't use like Paul. Well, very well. Cabotavir is a lot like Dalutavir. He's tolerating Dalutavir. Yeah, maybe, maybe they don't okay. have a problem. Yeah, it's probably okay. But uh, you, yeah. you don't have a crystal ball, yeah. right? Yeah. All yeah. the evidence it, suggests it's, it should be okay, but we, it hasn't been done. I don't want to be the first. Yeah, they, there are a couple demonstration projects, but we don't know the data. Paul, you're you're primed to say something. Yeah, well, I, I just uh, wonder. I should know the data and just I don't. But how many people had serious? Um, AEs during the oral lead-in. I, I think of these as two really well-tolerated drugs. Yeah, I don't. I don't know of any actually. He's actually very well tolerated. So I'm not sure. You know, he's already suppressed. You know that the that the dual uh, long-acting works. I'm not sure why it wouldn't work. Yeah. Go start. So I I was interested in going right to it, but yeah, he'd probably be willing to do it. But um, yeah, I. Uh, and then I think one of the things, and, and this will just take a minute, Connie, I know you like to be on time. The one thing that I wonder about, so so these are the data from Atlas and Flare. That's pooled data. Um, uh, Atlas is more like our patient, and Baba Femi probably showed you this. The, um, this. These are people that were suppressed actually for quite a long time. They go on oral therapy, then they go to injectable, and, and um, this was every four-week injectable therapy. And what, what we found was that it, it really worked quite well. The combination is in, in red, the injectables in red, the, the, uh, sorry, the injectables in blue, the, the continued oral therapy is in red. Um, uh, so there, there was a slight numeric difference. 
um, uh, mostly with no virologic data, very few virologic failures. Um, but in there was some resistance. So in the ATLAS study, um, uh, there were three uh, people who developed resistance. So it's it's three uh, out of, uh, I have to remember the number, um, I should know off the top of my head, three out of 300. So it's a small number of people. Um, but you do, unfortunately, see um, at least um, one person that developed kind of um, uh, uh, cabotegravir resistance. So that's that's one out of 300, but that's um, that's possible. Um, and then when you look at flare, now flare were treatment naive people only suppressed for 20 weeks, and and um, three of those people uh, developed um, a resistance, and and each of the three developed two drug, well, at, at two drug resistance at least by 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 genotype. So. Um, uh, it is um, a little bit, uh, you know, there, there's a trade-off here. Uh, and then we saw, this is Atlas 2M, we saw this at, at uh, Virtual Croy, um, uh, and where people switched to um, every, uh, e- either um, they were in Atlas and they switched to every eight weeks, um, or they came in outside of um, Atlas at, on oral therapy and uh, we're switched to every uh, eight weeks or every four weeks. Um, and th- what's interesting is every eight weeks look pretty good. A few more, numerically, a few more virologic failures with every eight weeks. But um, if they, you actually looked at um, uh, failures with either ropivirine or integrase resistance, uh, every eight weeks clearly seem to have a little bit more resistance and, and, and resistance with RAMs than, um, every, um, every four weeks. And what's, um, uh, was told to me, but not yet reported <laughs> for whatever that's worth is that if you were already suppressed on every four weeks and you switch to every eight weeks, um, you actually, none of those individuals, um, develop resistance. So, um, I, my, my strategy uh, for people that want to go on um, every, want to go on injectable therapy. If they're naive and they want to go to injectable, I'm going to suppress them for longer than 20 weeks. That's just my preference. I will probably suppress people. I'll tell them, well, you know, I think you should wait a year because I want to make sure your virus is like really suppressed. And then um, for people that are already suppressed, I'll probably go with every four weeks for a while before I transitioned every eight weeks. And, and I'm going to stop at this point. Um, I think we're, we're far over, so yeah, sorry, we're into our, our break. So let me just take the three questions that are in the uh, Q&A box for the moment, and then we'd like to stop for, have everybody be able to stop for a break for a little bit. But uh, you sort of already answered, but the purpose for the oral lead-in is to assure uh, tolerability, no reaction to the medication, get people fully suppressed. I think you guys have already addressed that. Uh, Another question had to do with the weight gain, and Mm -hmm. that was if someone's suppressed and controlled on Bictarvi, but gain 20 pounds, would you consider changing to a Favarin's-based regimen? The switch studies, I know you touched on them a little bit, but didn't really talk about switching to mm-hmm. go back to a regular weight. Yeah, yeah that, yeah, I mean, a Favarin's would, could be considered. I mean, we, there is generic a Favarin's, there's 400 milligrams, probably has less CNS side effects. So, it, it could be considered, I think. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not against that. Um, uh, I think Duravarine has some advantages, um, over a Favarin. So I would be like Baba Femi. I would, if I was switching to an NRTI, I would, I would probably move to Duravarine. Um, though we have less data on weight gain or weight loss with Duravarine. So. Yeah. Well, there, there was a uh, poster last, I think it was IDSA. Um, mm-hmm. it wasn't a large number, but actually, there was not a significant weight gain in the Duravarine. Yes, that's right. Uh, I think others have seen a little bit, but I, you know, I really think Duravarine, particularly, you know, this person had some resistance, so you wouldn't want to go to Favarin's, as you mentioned. So I think that's a really good choice. Yeah. And then last question is, uh, we're, with ongoing antiretroviral therapy studies, 
Will we be accounting or adjusting for COVID-19 related weight gain? We're starting to recognize that as a potential issue for people who develop COVID-19 in HIV. Yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. I'm not, I'm not aware of that association. Um, maybe one of the other panelists is. Um, not I mean, me either. So yeah. I think it's something we'll want for, but we'll have to figure it out as we go along, like we're doing with everything with the pandemic. So I'm going to bring this session to a close. Thank Joe and the panelists for wonderful discussions, the audience for wonderful questions. Yeah, super. Um, we need to come back pretty quickly to keep ourselves on time. So let's take a short break and come back at 12.05 cent, uh, Midwest time. And that would be 10.05 uh, Pacific time and 1.05, I guess, Eastern time. So whatever time zone you're in, give yourselves a seven-minute break and come back. Thank you.